Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. To her friend and early inspiration, Ramon Kuno, Iris wrote, not that I have finished with religion, I haven't even started yet. And in an interview in the 1980s, she stated that everything I have ever written is concerned with holiness. And in her later years, religion was, she said, the dream that does not cease to haunt us and indeed haunted her all her life. This tension between the denial of God in her own life and a desire for God, I think, underlies her theological expression throughout her life and indeed throughout her writings. Clearly in today's podcast, we can't cover all aspects of Murdoch's engagement with religion. So we're gonna outline the terrain, highlight areas for discussion, including her life, her theological writings and her later movement towards Buddhism. And although the novels will be surely be mentioned at some point, we're not gonna spend a great deal of time thinking about the fiction, we'll do this another time. We'll also mention, I'm sure, her final great work of philosophy, Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals, which, um, as you may know, ends with a psalm from the Old Testament. But again, this will be a subject of its own short series of podcasts at some point in the future. So we're really going to explore religion in a very general sense today as related to Murdoch's life and thought. Joining me to discuss Murdoch and religion are Christopher Gowans. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? Hi, thanks for being with us. Uh, Chris is Professor of Philosophy at Fordham University in New York City, and he works in contemporary moral philosophy as well as Buddhist philosophy. He's the author of Philosophy of the Buddha, which was uh, with Routledge in 2003, uh, Buddhist Moral Philosophy, also with Routledge, that came out in 2015, and uh, Self-Cultivation Philosophies in Ancient India, Greece, and China, and that's coming out later this year with Oxford University Press. He's also just written a chapter on Murdoch and Buddhism that's going to be um, coming out in uh, the Madokian Mind, which is also coming uh, with Routledge, I think, next year. So it's great to have him with us. Uh, we've also got uh, Scott H. Moore. Hello, Scott. Good morning. Hi, thanks for coming on. Uh, Scott's an Associate Professor of Philosophy and Great Texts at Baylor University in Waco in Texas. He's the author of How to Burn a Goat, Farming with the Philosophers and the Limits of um, Liberal Democracy as well, another one of his books, um, Religion, Politics at the End of Modernity. In fact, How to Burn a Goat um, came in the post just this morning to me, so I'm really looking forward to getting into that. And he's also the, um, the author of numerous essays on Iris Murdoch. Indeed, one of my first experiences of hearing about Murdoch's philosophy uh, was in one of um, Scott's talks way back when, at the beginning of the 21st century. He and his wife, Andrea, enjoy raising um, heritage livestock breeds on their small farm in Texas. And um, I, it's really good that um, he's, he's with us because he's one of the, uh, the great thinkers, I think, on uh, Murdoch and religion um, working at the present moment. So it's great to have you here, Scott. Thank you very much. And uh, finally, um, an old hand at the podcast. Um, we're joined by Francis White. Hello, Francis. Hello. Uh, Frances has been on several times before, and as you probably know, she's the Deputy Director of the Iris Murdoch Research Centre here at the University of Chichester, as well as the editor of the Iris Murdoch Review, and the author of the award-winning short biography, Becoming Iris Murdoch. Uh, she's also got a chapter in the Murdochian Mind uh, that's coming out next year, entitled How Iris Murdoch Can Change Your Life. And she's also authored, you know, too many other articles and papers to mention, I think, at this point, but uh, she's uh, one, one, a leading light in, in, in Madokian uh, thought. Uh, she's a guest on the very first podcast. In fact, I think so far the only in-person podcast we've produced on Under the Net. Uh, she's also a guest on the episodes on The Bell and Murdoch and Ireland, so it's lovely that she's back. Uh, Francis, can we start with you? I mean, you, you know so much about uh, Murdoch's life. Um, 
the whole span of it really. Could you give us a rough outline of Murdoch's biography and, and uh, her engagement with, with religion? And it's kind of the trajectory of her life as it were. Certainly I can. Um, Iris was a deeply, deeply religious person, even though she wasn't a conventional churchgoer for most of her life. She did have a religious background. She's an Anglo-Irish Protestant, and that is quite important in her self of sense identity. It's a sense of self-identity. And it's been important in her thinking throughout. And she remembers prayers with her mother at her knee and religious songs like Tell Me the Old Old Story of Jesus and His Love as a child. In an interview with people, she said things like, I am not myself a Christian believer, but I was brought up as a Christian and I feel close to Christianity. Later she said, I can't get away from the Christ who travels with me. I was Christian as a child. So she's in the Anglican tradition, but there's also a strong Quaker influence. She went to badminton school in Bristol, where her headmistress was a Quaker, and the girls had to go somewhere to church on Sunday, and she went to a variety of churches, Quaker meetings, the Anglican church, Congregationist churches, but she chose as a 15-year-old to be confirmed in the Anglican church. So it was a fairly strong um, basis in religion at the time. They had morning assembly and evening prayers and everything. So uh, she started life in a fairly traditional way. And I think it stayed with her for quite a long time. In, Miles spoke of the tension in her life in the religious thinking, and there was a great deal of tension. She had a friend called Lucy Klatchko when she was at Oxford, who having been very wild and decided she would enter a convent to become a nun, and she became Sister Marian. And Iris was really horrified by this. She couldn't see how somebody could immure themselves and shut themselves away from the world. And yet she was also strangely drawn to it. And she did herself make several retreats at Malling Abbey and rather loved the, um, the life in the convent. She wrote beautifully about um, the nuns and the simplicity and the plain song. And it, it deeply, deeply touched her, I think. And yet it wasn't for her. But she stayed in touch with Sister Marion and wrote to her throughout her life and went to see her. And there was a very strong influence there. She was quite well read in theology. Her headmistress gave her Augustine City of God. Uh, later, Donald McKinnon gave her Buber to read. And um, she was very well read in Eckhart, Cloud of Unknowing, a lot of mystical works indeed. But then she married John Bailey. And John Bailey and his circle in Oxford at that time, I would say it would have been quite a powerful, powerful influence from many people. Gunnar himself would have been, have been another person who would have influenced her in this way. Found um, the idea of belief in God just intellectually untenable. It, it, was, it, was, it was like believing in fairies. And she kind of went along with that and left her connections with it. It, to some extent, but it stayed inside her. And you see this, it comes out in her novels, it comes out in her journals enormously. She had trouble with the metaphysics of Christianity. And I'm going to read a little passage where I um, describe this in my book because it um, summarizes it. Iris Murdoch herself engaged in discussion with strong Christian believers at different points of the spectrum from Roman Catholic nuns to evangelical Anglicans. She was interested in religion, but as her philosophy would later argue and her novels demonstrate, she was ultimately unable to accept the grand narrative of Christianity, which has shaped human thought and art in the Western world for good and ill. The stance that she was to maintain was developed as she read and talked during these years, a stance which can roughly be described thus. 
Iris Murdoch rejects the concepts of a personal God and of eternal life. Furthermore, she quarrels with the central metaphysical hermeneutic of Christianity, pivotal focus on the suffering and death of Christ as a means of atonement and redemption. Because she finds this meta-narrative not only intellectually untenable, but morally objectionable. It goes against the grain of her understanding of the nature of good. One must be good for nothing, not for the personal gain she sees as involved in this payback of being pardoned and offered salvation. So she can't cope with the, the metaphysics of Christianity, as it were, and yet the mystical side of it and the moral side of it appealed to her greatly, and the figure of Christ remained immensely important to her. And she said throughout her life that there was only three things that were really important to her. One was to be married, which of course she was for 40 years to John Bailey, very happily on the whole. Um, one was to write a good novel, which she did, 26 of them. And the other was to be a saint. And that was very important. And you find her characters as well in her novel, striving towards sainthood, striving to be better. And I wanted to turn from that early part of her life, and I'll leave the um, theology aside for, for Scott to deal with, her last journal, which is a most moving work, it, it breaks off um, on the 8th of May, 1996, um, about three years before she actually died. It, it breaks down into fragments, it becomes ungrammatical. It's, it's a, a very, very heart-wrenching thing to read. But throughout those last couple of years in that last journal from 92 to 96, there are passages and passages from Eckhart there's lots and lots of quotations and thinking about religion and how to keep it. It's terribly important to her. And there's a strange quotation, which I have never been able to find, and I haven't found anybody who has been able to find the origin of it. It says, I would go into the dark if it meant light for you. And that comes up six times in, in these journals. She keeps writing out that sentence. And she writes the thing she's reading. She's reading Eckhart. She's reading The Cloud of Unknowing. She's reading even Underhill. And Simone Weil, of course, was another great influence on her spiritual thinking as well. So there's a lot in the journal about this. And I'd like to just read a couple of passages from it, which um, seem to me to be quite important. She chose to write in the journal a piece that she omitted from her Kingston Barbican speech, which she made at the university when she was given an honorary doctorate. And she chose to write this out very late in her life. Looking back again upon our, my century, here I venture to add another comment of my own. A notable feature is a change in the situation in religion in the West. In the previous 19th century in Europe, America, and other parts of the world, traditional Christianity was taken for granted. Increasingly, in the second half of this century, it has tended to lose its position, its status, its power, and fundamentally for many people, its believability. I myself do not believe literally in a personal God, the divinity of Christ, or life after death. But I do believe in what Christianity stands for, its lessons of virtue and love, and the teachings of its great mystics in keeping the Christian story, which is meant to us, what it has meant to us through so many centuries. And as for instance, the Buddhist keeps the figure of Buddha as an icon of perfection. Here, I think we may indeed learn from other religions who are more able to retain the holiness of their God and gods in the new non-literalistic era. There are reasons for this on which we, which we might reflect upon. 
surely the teaching of Christ in this profound and truth-bearing form should not disappear because old literal beliefs are no longer accepted. And I don't know quite why she omitted that, whether it was too personal or to make it too long, but she didn't put it in the Kingston speech, but it mattered to her to write it out. And then the last passage I want to write out is a very, it's really very close to the end of, of um, her journal writing when she, it is all breaking down, it's fragmented. And yet you see in this passage, which is exactly as I'm reading it, these fragments, all the, the, the repetitive um, thoughts of Christianity, of, of religious things coming to her and how important they were. And of course, she wrote three drafts of Metaphysics' Guide to Morals. There was the original Gift of Lectures draft, and then she redrafted it twice more. And it ends very differently each time. But when she published it, she chose to end it with Psalm 139. And I don't think that's insignificant either. So what she's written here, and it's a very muddled lot, some of its thoughts about novels, some of its memories and stuff, is Loving, murder by suicide pact. My angel has died or been assigned to someone else. A big country house, the road to Mandalay. Someone slowly driven slowly into evil, a child, a boy, a tall pale man, silent, killing moths, birds singing, music, India, angel, spider, flowing river, flowing hair. Jesus prayer, silent Zen, Christ on the cross, Sholem, children, naked girl and dog running in the night. All things are now disturbed. Jesus, prayer in silence. Zen, drowning, crying. Lear and Cordelia, birds flying, owls crying. Kill moths, Christ on cross. Tiny creature in the air. I lift up my skirt, a little puppy. Look across the water, some creature weeping. A silver swan, a toad, punishment. Agony of jealousy, flaying of Marcias, Virtuti parrot roba, the Greek gods, the word became flesh. A house, looking over water, across agony of jealousy, Athena, swifts fly high, a witch, the great game. Virtuti parrot roba, my mother's motto. Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, the cloud of the unknowing, drowning, crying, Christ on the cross, Lucy, Sister Marian, Swifts fly high, the nun of Monza. My angel has died or been given to someone else. I should go into the dark if it meant light for you. Naked girl and dog running in the night. She also writes in this late journal quite a bit about letters that she's had from Sister Marion, from Lucy, as she continued to call her. And she wrote down people's addresses and names obsessively in this late journal, as if she was trying to hold on to this information that was disappearing from her poor head. And she's written, Lucy is Sister Marion, in capital letters, as if she's trying to keep that connection of knowing who this is. So it's, it is very heartrending, but I think these all these religious and spiritual thoughts were tied up her and went and through her right the way all the way I don't think she ever lost it at all and I do think that without John's influence she might have stayed much closer to um, some organized form of religion you can see her as being an abbess like the abbess of the bell I mean she was a wise woman a compassionate woman as well as a wild woman but um, I, I think there was a lot of undeveloped aspects of her spirituality and her theological thinking partly time I mean she did so much in her life anyway but also, I think John drew her away from that and Cano and other people. And it was made 
something that she couldn't share. It had to be a sort of rather private part of her life, I think, in many ways. Mm. I think that's about as much as I need to say at this point, Miles. That's, well, that's wonderful. I think that gives us a really good, a very rich kind of background and also so much there that you've just read out from that final journal. Um, ties it. I just just listening to you there, just thinking of how many novels a lot of those kind of little um, moments, those tiny quotations mean, and how they dotted around throughout her throughout her fictional work, and indeed throughout her uh, philosophy as well. In some regards, I think some of those ideas are you know really really central to Metaphysics: The Guide to Morals. And Scott, I remember the last time we met, which was way back when in 2019. I think you said that uh, had she not married John Bailey, she may well have become one of the great theologians of the age. Um, and so perhaps that was that was Alistair McIntyre's comment. Oh, uh, was it? right. Credit for that. So um, Alistair uh, speculated on that. Yeah, but uh, would you would you agree? Well, you know, um, probably not. Um, <laughs> uh, though I am loath to disagree with Alistair, especially on something that's going to be recorded uh, and put on the internet. <laughs> But, um, um, you know, I mean, I, she might have been one of the great mystics, um, yeah. but to be a theologian requires um, a certain greater and specificity, a greater specificity with respect to um, the tradition of theological discourse and the attempt to, to make sense of, 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 you know, what doctrine is and, and, and what, uh, how, to, how to think about these matters. I mean, I... I think she, she, she could have been a, a, a great religious thinker and a, without being a theologian. I mean, that's, um, um, but that's probably has more to do with my own sense of what the vocation of a theologian is, particularly with respect to um, when we, when we think about people, sure. Bart von Balthasar, I mean, the people that are, are the, the important theologians of the 20th century, I don't think Iris would have would have been working in the same field that they um, that they were working in. Too dynamic. Her thought was, you know, too too diffuse and dynamic, perhaps, yeah. in, the, in in many ways. So, Scott, could you talk talk to us a little bit about how you see her kind of um, her theological thinking developing in um, in the work that you've been um, doing over the last sort of twenty years, really? Well, um, you know, nobody wants to go after Francis when um, someone is speaking about uh, uh, all of these matters because Francis knows all of this stuff cold. Uh, um, you know, I think the thing that is, um, is that's so compelling here is um, that she, she is engaged in this constant internal dialogue. Um, she is absolutely clear that she does not believe in God and yet she cannot quit talking about him. Uh, and, um, and part of it is especially unique given her, her situation, you know, A.N. Wilson, um, uh, in that, uh, rather scandalous biography that he wrote, um, decade ago or so, however long that was, you know, he, he claims that Iris said to him that John Bailey got rid of God for her, um, and, um, and I think that that points to what Francis was talking about a moment ago, that it really was the community of, it was the world that she was living in, in the middle third of the century in Oxford, that was um, a, a, deeply, um, a deeply disenchanted 
world um, in the Weberian sense. And you think about people that are her closest friends. I mean, so not just Bailey, but uh, Philippa Foote and uh, A.J. Ayer uh, and uh, Stuart Hampshire. I mean, th these, this is a world within which to, to talk meaningfully about um, the person of God is largely, um, is largely incoherent. And yet Iris continues to do so. She continues to struggle with this. And as you pointed out, in almost every novel, you've got someone struggling with their faith, yeah. um, either implicitly um, or explicitly, like in A Time of Angels um, or um, uh, uh, Henry and Cato. I mean, people who have, have lost their faith, I mean, nuns and soldiers, right? I mean, this is, is a... Um, this is a, a book in which the question about the vitality of faith and the, the relevance of, of faith and what belief in God might entail are absolutely central to how she's working these, um, these matters out. And she's struggling with it. And, and as Francis pointed out, I mean, the, the question of, of the existence of God or, or, or what to do with a world without God um, absolutely haunts metaphysics as a guide to morals. I mean, from the beginning to end. Um, so uh, I think that's interesting. What's, what's so profoundly um, curious to me is that, as I said, um, for, for most of her community, the loss of religious belief was a function of general disenchantment. And yet Iris's entire world remains profoundly enchanted. I mean, she, she, she is not, um, uh, she's not a function of, of um, as, as Weber, you know, puts it, a, a, a world in which everything can be known by calculation. Uh, I mean, that's not how she thinks about this. The dogs talk. I mean, we have this sort of magical um, presentation of, of her engagement with the world. I mean, um, I've written a little essay about her relationship with J.R.R. Tolkien, um, whom she didn't know very well. Um, they knew his son Christopher far better, but she she was enthralled by this world of of fairies and uh, and magic, and and so normally disenchantment and the loss of religious belief go hand in hand, and in Iris's case, she she denies. The, the doctrinal matters and maintains a profoundly enchanted world. So it's quite curious. And I think that's part of why we keep talking about it is because it's so rich for investigation and exploration. One of the things that, that struck me and Francis later, when we get off of this, I want you to send me an email of, of, of those quotations that you read. In that one passage, three times, she mentions that she doesn't believe literally in the person of God or in a non, um, the old literal beliefs. The philosopher in me is just bumfuzzled as to what she actually means by literal here. I mean, I mean, um, it, it's a, it's a quite sort of sloppy use of language. I mean, um, if in fact she's thinking about, you know, metaphysical claims, those, I mean, that's not a literal issue. I think it comes back to this larger question of um, that I've, I've argued for for a number of years that that right at the heart of this is this understanding of a kind of say show distinction like Wittgenstein presents, and that she really 
does not think that these doctrinal matters can be said. They can be articulated in any kind of coherent, um, straightforward, philosophical way. But they, but the the content of religious belief is something that must be shown. Uh, that must be shown through one's life and the way that one lives, rather than in um, the literal language imposing doctrines which attempt to um, to articulate the content of the faith. And this is this probably is is why. Um, and I won't venture into Chris's area here, but I mean. Um, that, that she was attracted to to Buddhism in uh, in these um, these ways as a kind of non-doctrinaire uh, expression of of these deep deeply felt religious commitments. The you know the the um, Julian of, of Norwich that that book the the title that we now have it under the the revelations of divine love or the showings of divine love um, I mean that. As Julian says in the longer text there at the end, that that the revelation of God is a revelation of love, uh, and that and it's at it's absolutely central to the character here. It was all about love, and she says it three times. Um, and I think that that resonated with Iris. I mean, this uh, this this picture of love. One of the things that we see. Uh, from the earliest philosoph moral philosophy essays in the 50s is an attempt to recover a concept of love which had largely been excluded almost by definition by um, the, the R.M. Hare, I mean, the, the, the establishment of, of conventional moral philosophy in Oxford in the middle part of the century. And she's, um, she's taking that on and it, it had an effect. I mean, it alienated her from some of her friends and um, and the philosophical establishment, you know, she she gives up her official post as the early '60s um, um, as um, uh, on the, the philosophy faculty at Oxford. Obviously, she continues to do these things, but but she was very much at odds, and they did not understand her own interest in some of these uh, continental figures. So, um, um, you know, I, I think it's it's a profoundly important investigation. It's the sort of thing that lots of people need to continue reflecting on. And I think for all of us who, who see ourselves as, um, as, as, as walking a pilgrimage of faith and struggling with the questions that emerge and uh, in, in a world that is changing and very different, Iris is a, is a great companion because she is always struggling with these, with these kinds of questions. And we see it um, presented in fiction and we see it presented in the nonfiction. Absolutely, Scott. I think that's um again a very good um sort of examination of the kind the, the path that, that Murdoch was was walking. I was thinking back when you were talking about um her work in the in, in the 40s and 50s at Oxford, having you know the um linguistic and um analytic analytical philosophers on one side linguistic philosophers of course on the other side you've got the influence of Donald McKinnon the friendship with Elizabeth Anscombe of course is a you know very a, a very um, strong believer in, in Catholicism um Lucy Klatchko becomes Sister Marion she's got the she's got a balance there and um I, th I think the the turning point is um the uh a marriage to John in the mid mid 50s but um what I'd like to do now I think is, is move on a little bit later um, because certainly in the in the 1970s and, and indeed beyond that, she becomes very interested. Um, sort of uh, once she's discovered Simone Weil and um, and thought about her, and I think then we kind of move on towards a, a, um, a great 
interest and um, an examination of Buddhism. And Chris, I'd like to, to in, invite you to talk a little bit about that, um, because I think it's a really underdeveloped part of um, Iris's story. And, um, you know, I personally don't know that much about it. I'm, I'm interested in how the Buddhism is reflected in, in the novels and certainly how it comes out in elements of metaphysics. But uh, perhaps for, for both our listeners and indeed for, for me as well, you could uh, explore that, um, that area for a, for a little while. So I'm a philosopher and I do, I do have a, a definite view about uh, Iris Murdoch's uh, relationship to Buddhist philosophy, but it's based uh, on reading her published philosophical works. Uh, I have read some of her novels, but it's not really based on that. It's based on, uh, on uh, sovereignty and metaphysics guide to moral and, and other essays that she published in philosophy. Uh, in brief, my view is that she had a qualified appreciation of Zen Buddhist practices as something that she saw uh, as similar, uh, not something that she herself really embraced, but she saw something there that was kind of allied to what she was doing. Um, so my uh, framework for thinking about her uh, is, uh, is in terms of what I call self-cultivation philosophy. So let me just say what I mean by that. First, um, self-cultivation philosophy is one form philosophy can take. Uh, it's a practical approach. It sees philosophy uh, as having a practical goal. Uh, there's an analysis of what we might think of as the default situation of human beings as in some ways uh, problematic, troubled, uh, by uh, selfishness or greed or anxiety and uh, some kinds of, uh, of ignorance. Uh, and it, on the other hand, supposes that there's, there's some kind of ideal state of being that we could hope to achieve uh, that overcomes the problematic state and usually involves some kind of, uh, of uh, moral perfection or moral development uh, usually involves some kind of uh, sense of contentment or tranquility, usually involves some kind of wisdom. Um, and then it, uh, so third is that there's some notion of transformative practices that we can undergo, philosophical exercises, moral disciplines, uh, meditative disciplines, uh, various sorts of things. We could think of them as spiritual exercises or therapeutic exercises. Uh, are things that human beings can do to move from that starting point, what I call the existential starting point, to the ideal state of being. And beneath it, uh, there's an understanding of human nature that makes sense of all of those components of where we are, where we might hope to be, uh, and how we might hope to get there. So my view uh, is that uh, there were, uh, I don't think all philosophy in the ancient world is like this, but prominent uh, ancient philosophies in India, in Greece, and in China can all be uh, profitably interpreted from that framework. All right, so with that as background, uh, I think that in the essays that make up sovereignty, uh, Murdoch, uh, on the one hand, she's critiquing uh, linguistic analysis and existentialism, but uh, the positive side of that, I think that book can be interpreted as putting forth a self-cultivation philosophy. Uh, she thinks that we're prone to selfishness, to greediness, uh, but then we have this notion of perfection as something that we're drawn towards. 
She uses that language. Um, and of course, she associates this very much with uh, Plato's uh, metaphysics of the good. So we have a, a, a notion of an ideal that we can hope to achieve. She clearly is looking for, for uh, some notion of exercises, moral disciplines, spiritual exercises, practices we could engage in to move towards the perfection. She doesn't think we can attain it, uh, but we, she does think, think we could move in that direction. And there's definite views about human nature, I think, that inform that. Uh, so in sovereignty, I think she has, uh, she, she's sort of fighting against her philosophical environment, which seems completely unwelcome to this conception and trying to articulate a view of that sort. And I think that's what she's doing in that book. There is no uh, discussion of Buddhism in that book. Uh, the three essays that make it up were published in the 1960s. And though I gather she uh, prior to that did have some kind of acquaintance with Buddhism, there's, there's no evidence of it there. Uh, but what's interesting, so phase two of my reading of her, in the essay, uh, Existentialists and Mystics, which was published in 1970, I think that's the same year that Sovereignty itself was published. Uh, the opening paragraph and the closing paragraph make a direct reference to Zen Buddhism. In the opening paragraph, uh, she talks about uh, Plato and Zen masters as distrusting art and uses that as a kind of launching pad for her articulation of what she calls the existentialist novel, uh, which has a lot in common with the conception that's uh, described in Sovereignty. And then at the end of it, so I'll just read this little passage. Uh, she suggests that a writer, the novelist, the writer of the existentialist novel, I think, uh, quote, uh, resembles the Buddhist master who said that when he was young, he thought that mountains were mountains and rivers were rivers. Then after many years of study and devotion, he decided that mountains were not mountains and rivers were not rivers. And then at last, when he was very old and wise, he came to understand that mountains are mountains and rivers are rivers. Uh, that is a very well-known motif uh, going back to the Tang Dynasty and Chan Buddhism and is a commonplace in Zen Buddhist discourse. Uh, she didn't, I think at that point, actually identify it as such, but that's what it is. It makes uh, repeated appearances later in uh, metaphysics as a guide to moral. So I think it's clear at that juncture that she sees in Buddhism, and I think especially in Zen, uh, she sees something that might offer her. There's, there's this kind of searching quality, I think, in sovereignty. It does have this definite religious dimension. She's, she's rejecting what she sees as, as the metaphysics of Christianity we were talking about before. Uh, but she, she sees that there might be a kind of transformation of Christian practices. She's very interested in prayer in sovereignty as a kind of purification process. And she's wondering if there might be a way to rework that uh, that would serve her project. And I think she sees, I think she sees in Zen the same thing. So if we move ahead to Metaphysics Guide to Morals, I mean, this is where we see, I think, the kind of culmination, at least in her philosophical work about this. Um, I might just pause for a moment to say something about her 
knowledge of Buddhism. Yes, please. That'd be great. I, I think she has, at a very general level, some knowledge of Buddhist philosophy, but I do not see that she has a very specific knowledge of Buddhist philosophy. Um, there's also a question of whether she misunderstood Buddhism in some ways. And I think there's one respect in which uh, she comes close. It relates to what we were discussing earlier uh, on one point. Um, and she, she, she says uh, in an interview, I think from 1983, thereabouts, uh, she, she's speaking positively about, about uh, Buddhist religion. And she says, it's all about the here and now. It's not about somewhere else. It's not about an afterlife. Uh, but in fact, Buddhism uh, has a set of basic beliefs that for many Buddhists in the world today are fundamental. There's rebirth. We've had lives before this and lives after. And we can hope perhaps to escape the cycle of rebirth and attain nirvana. That was the basic teaching of the Buddha. In East Asian Buddhism, there's a pure land we can hope to reborn, be reborn in and attain enlightenment. And there are cosmic bodhisattvas uh, that are available to assist us. It's a kind of, a kind of Buddhist version of grace. I think you could think of it in those terms. Um, she, she note, I think she realized these things, she notes it, but she, she says uh, that sophisticated Buddhists uh, view those as kind of myths and they're not really essential uh, to what Buddhism about. Um, so, I mean, there are manifestations of Buddhism where that's true. I think that's correct, but I do think that uh, she, she comes close to representing a view that's sometimes called Buddhist modernism, uh, which, which interprets its Western appropriations of Buddhism that read it selectively and focus on things that uh, they think are important and are compatible with views such as the importance of recognizing the authority of science and constraining our beliefs. So I, th I think she's, in some comments, it's, it's close to that view. At any rate, in, in uh, Metaphysics Guide to Morals, uh, Buddhism makes an appearance, but it's kind of a cameo appearance. I mean, the overwhelming intellectual terrain of Metaphysics Guide to Morals is, is what are thought of as the major Western philosophers. And then in addition, some religious figures, psychologists, uh, figures from literature. It's overwhelmingly a Western terrain. Scattered throughout it, there are references to Buddhism, very brief references. And of course, one of the, one of the places that's gotten a lot of attention, so I'll just note it here, there's a, a line, this is in, in the chapter on the ontological proof, where she says, I have been talking as a neo-Christian or Buddhist Christian or Christian fellow traveler. Uh, that's widely referred to. Um, in my view, the most interesting thing about that sentence is that the word Christian appears in all three disjuncts. Uh, to me, that sounds less like someone looking for a way to be a Buddhist than it does someone who's looking for a way to be a Christian. Uh, at any rate, the most interesting part of, of 
this book, uh, in my view, is not that. The most interesting part is in chapter, I think it's chapter eight on consciousness. Uh, that's, I think this, there's two consciousness chapters. I think it's the second one. Uh, in the middle of that, she's talking about consciousness. She's talking about Husserl. And then she refers to somebody named Katsuki Sakita, uh, who wrote a book called Zen Training Methods in Philosophy. And she goes on for about 10 pages talking about him, uh, his critique of Husserl, that's the entree. But then she, she goes into this kind of general discussion of the value of Zen uh, philosophy. Now that's the most important statement to my knowledge in her philosophical works about Buddhism. Uh, so what she says there is that uh, Zen practice, so she's thinking of Zazen, she's thinking of koan meditation, she's thinking of practices that involve uh, art, uh, painting, and haiku. Uh, I think she sees there a set of practices that are, have a similar aim as hers, that she's looking for a kind of moral purification processes, ways to overcome selfishness and ways to become loving and attentive to the good. And she sees in that a project that is similar to her own. Uh, and, and she's kind of intrigued and attracted to it. She also has reservations. She asks, she asks directly, um, she says in the course of that, the question recurs, can such religious practice make people better? And she says it could make us more calm, less given to egotistic passions, more unselfish. But then she says, but what about love as it is understood by Plato and Christianity? So she, she has a reservation and she, she wonders, you know, what, what it really would produce. But then she says, well, again, how can one say? And she seems, in, I think, uncertain. She, she's intrigued and drawn to it. And yet she feels like she doesn't really know what to make of it. She sees it. It's a religious training. But at the end of that section, she goes back and says, we need the platonic picture. Uh, so, so I think, I mean, that, that's the place where I think we see most clearly uh, how she related uh, to Buddhist practice and philosophy. It's interesting in a book called Metaphysics Guide to Morals, she doesn't really talk much about Buddhist metaphysics. <laughs> um, she's aware that there is quite esoteric metaphysical view in Buddhism in some manifestations, the view that there is no self uh, in Mahayana manifestations that inform this Chan and Zen tradition. It is the view called emptiness, which on the face of it seems very perplexing, but it's, it's just the view that nothing has an intrinsic nature, that everything is dependent on other things. It's a view of interdependence. Uh, I think myself that there are metaphysical resources uh, there that uh, might well have served her project uh, in, in uh, East Asian and in Chan and Zen uh, expressions of Buddhism. Uh, it's unclear to me to what extent uh, she was aware of these. There are other meditative practices uh, earlier in Buddhism. There's, uh, there is a practice in Buddhaghosa, Theravada commentator on how we can develop loving kindness and compassion in Shantideva, a Mahayana figure. 
There's a meditation called Exchange of Self and Other, also intended to develop compassion uh, in the Zen tradition. There, there's, there are meditative practices uh, that involve contemplation of Japanese Zen gardens as a way of realizing the interdependence of all things and developing compassion. I think there's a rich uh, set of resources there uh, beyond what she seemed uh, aware of that she might have drawn on and also metaphysically, even though her metaphysics is definitely different, uh, I think there are expressions of uh, Buddhist metaphysics uh, that she might've looked at that she could have seen uh, uh, a kind of ally in, but probably I've said too much at this No, point. that's wonderful, um, Chris. Thank you very much for Go back to that. And I think that's interesting because it goes back to what Francis and, and Scott were saying, this um, question of tension between belief and non-belief between East and West between her trying to form a worldview and coming up because of her interest in so much, trying to, and I think she tries to do this in Metaphysics of the Guide to Morals and whether, it's, uh, whether it works or not is I think a, a question probably for another podcast. But um, I, Francis, I'd like to, to get your thoughts on what Chris has just been saying and uh, reflect. That was fascinating. Yes, oh, absolutely yeah. fascinating. Because one thing that I didn't bring up was um, how much she traveled and the influence that her travels had on her. She traveled quite extensively in India and had Indian friends with whom she talked about religion, both Buddhism and Hinduism. She also traveled in Japan, she went to Japan three times and loved it and went to the temples and met monks. And there are certainly books in her archive on Zen Buddhism. I haven't been able to get into the archive because of the lockdown, but it would be fascinating to see which book she has. And she annotated and underlined a lot. So it would be very, very interesting to go through those books and see what, what she brought out of it. She loved India and she said she felt that religion was just everywhere in India and just present all the time. It was an intrinsic part of people's lives that they were soaked in. It wasn't a hold on extra as it can seem to be in, well, in the West. It was just imbued with it. And China, she was much less happy about. She didn't really enjoy her time in China in the same way. She was interested, but she didn't feel relaxed into the people and the, the atmosphere of the place in the same way. But I also wanted to go back to something that Scott was saying as well about the prevailing um, philosophical atmosphere at the time that she was teaching in Oxford. Before she met John Bailey, she was involved with a group called Metaphysicals, and she was the only woman who was. And she also gave a paper to a thing called the Socratic Society. And this was where she really wanted to um, not have philo philosophy and religion divided, uh, separated from each other, and not have theology on one side and philosophy on the other, and never the twain shall meet, because she had such a holistic view of who we are. She's very embodied in her work. You know, we are, we are creatures of flesh. We are frail mortal beings. She's very aware of that. We're also spiritual beings. We're also intellectual beings. And she doesn't think you can divide us up in that way. And these papers she gave for the Metaphysics and the Discratic Club were attempts to draw religion and philosophy more closely together again, which was out of fashion at that time. But now, I think, with the turn to religion at the end of the 20th century, beginning of this century, is becoming a very focal point of the way that people are thinking now. And she said something interesting when she was young to Kenner again. She said, uh, this was in 46 she wrote this, I started life as a political animal, thinking my soul didn't matter. Now I am almost a religious animal, thinking it matters vitally. In the swing between those two attitudes by all the philosophical problems that interest me. Where does she say that? Letter to Kenner. In, 80s, in 46. I think that's about the same time as the uh, the quotation I read out earlier. This one, this one that she hasn't actually 
um, you know, I haven't finished with religion. She hadn't actually started it yet. And I think that's, yeah. that runs, I think she always felt that, that there was always, she was only just scratching the surface. And I wonder, Chris, whether you think that actually her view of Buddhism is perhaps a, a westernized populist version of Buddhism rather than the real kind of McCoy, as it were, the, the, uh, the uh, some actual um, teachings that she might have got. She spent more time actually studying, studying those elements. Uh, it, it is a, a real question in my mind uh, what she knew about Buddhism. Uh, there, I mean, Buddhism is many things. So there, there's, I mean, there's the Indian origins, but then there are the developments um, in, uh, in East Asia, especially. Mm. So Buddhism, a lot of things. Uh, she, she knew uh, a bit about Tibetan Buddhism, uh, it seems. Uh, and I mentioned the book uh, about uh, Zen training. See, that, that's the one thing she actually talks about and refers to specifically and, and, and discusses it at some length. And it is, a, I would be interested to see the library because I wondered, uh, you know, what, what does she know? She probably knew uh, D.T. Suzuki's works uh, because if at the, in that era, if someone knew anything about Buddhism, they probably... Uh, read those. Um, it's also true that uh, our resources in English on Buddhism now are just vastly greater mm -hmm. than what she would have had available to her, let's say, in the 1970s and 1980s. I mean, that was the point, you know, when things were starting to pick up. Uh, I mean, there definitely were lots of works about Buddhist philosophy that uh, were available at that time. And it's not evident from her philosophical works that she knew about those. Um, I, I think, uh, yeah, so your question about whether she embraced a kind of pop form of <laughs> Buddhism, I, I mean, I think there, I think it's, I don't know if I'd put it exactly that way. I mean, even Suzuki himself uh, has been criticized for his representation of Buddhism, which he was, he's Japanese, but he's presenting it to the Western world. And there are definitely critiques of uh, what he's presenting. Um, I mean, I, I mean, I think she, I think she mostly saw, I think it's really the practices. I, I don't see signs in her philosophical works of an interest in what we might think of as Buddhist metaphysics. Mm. And there are extensive, I mean, in many ways, intellectually, Buddhist metaphysics uh, that I alluded to earlier is, is at the heart of, of Buddhist thought. Um, and I don't, I, I see, uh, I see a bit of awareness of that, but not very much. What she seemed really be, to be drawn to uh, were the practices. And I think she did see uh, in Zen, and I know, I know she did go to Japan, and then she did have a bit of personal interaction there. I, I think she, she saw something was promising there. So Buddhism, in a way, looked good, because there's no God. This seems to just be, at least in the start, you know, in the philosophical work, that, that's just, that's just an axiom, right? There's no God, there's no afterlife. Uh, and so, uh, at least on, on the, on the no God front, Buddhism, you know, looked good, but, but she is, see, she, when she says, you know, she says, oh, I don't, 
you know, I can't accept these supernatural aspects of Christianity. Uh, there's definitely aspects of Buddhism that uh, would be supernatural in the same way she's using that. And she, she's, as I say, she's, I think she knew that, but she's focusing on, on a, an expression of Buddhism that's downplaying that. And, and probably, in, at least in the Zen context, it was, as it were, easier to do that than it would be in, in other contexts. Chris, do you think um, um, that it might be the case that um, that not a pop Buddhism, but that um, it was more an aesthetics of Buddhism that she was she was drawn to here? Um, we see this a lot in her appropriation of certain Christian themes. She um, she liked religious services. She liked the mass. She liked religious music. Um, she signed, I find this absolutely incomprehensible. She signed a joint letter written by Agatha Christie to the Pope. Um, it's called the Agatha Christie Indult, uh, <laughs> written in the wake of Vatican II, requesting permission for Catholic priests to be able to perform the Latin mass um, in a time in which the church after Vatican II shifted almost entirely to vernacular uh, masses. Well, she didn't believe what was being proposed in the mass, um, but she liked the aesthetic of it. She liked this, um, she liked this experience uh, that was involved. Um, um, and my, my own, I mean, I really know almost nothing about Buddhism, um, but my sense has always been that it had this, um, um, this kind of shallow um, appeal to a, a certain kind of aesthetic that was, um, that did, did not, take seriously these uh, these metaphysical claims and that it's interesting to hear you confirm that because that had because zen and buddhist they're just sort of sprinkled throughout i mean we don't we don't get any kind of serious sustained engagement it just like in that 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 1970s existentialists and mystics it um she likes that story she comes back to that story in metaphysics as a guide to morals um she she that story becomes her story for communicating something she's interested in Rather than her submitting herself to a to a tradition or a, a, a set of, of practices in those regards, is that is that too uncharitable? I read. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Um, so I, again, restricting myself to Zen because I think there are a lot of different manifestations of Buddhism in the world. Um, so one thing she says, I guess I didn't read this before. Um, she says about Zen, she says, uh, the imageless austerity of Zen is impressive and attractive. It represents to us the real thing, what it is like to be stripped of the ego and how difficult this is. That's from that same section in, in the chapter uh, where she talks about uh, Sakita's book. Uh, I mean, there's no question that there is a, there is a distinctive Zen Buddhist aesthetic. Uh, it's, and it is a kind of, you know, a kind of minimalist aesthetic in many ways. And there is something enormously attractive and appealing about it. And much of Zen practice, uh, meditative practice, for example, um, is wrapped up in, in the uh, sort of environment of that 
uh, Zen aesthetic. So I think, uh, what, was she attracted to that? She definitely, I think, found that aspect, found Zen practice attractive, uh, at least centrally, because of, of this aesthetic dimension that, of course, you know, aesthetics is so much a part of her life in many ways. So I think that's true. Um, um, and, and perhaps more than an interest in its metaphysics. I mean, that, that's probably a, a fair statement, but I, I do think that central though, I mean, she saw it as a form of, of unselfing, right? She's, she sees, and I think she rightly sees, she's accurately seen that this is a practice, a kind of purification practice that is supposed to shed us of our selfish, egotistical, greedy tendencies, lead to a kind of purification, which would result in, you know, in Buddhist terms, in universal compassion and universal loving kindness. I think she saw that that was the moral core of it and that that was closely allied uh, to what she uh, certainly sensed those essays in sovereignty that she was looking for. You know, she was- no, There's no doubt. That's, that's a very- so I think in that respect, she's seeing something quite accurately in Buddhism. So Francis, how dependent is she upon Peter Conradi at this point? Because um, I mean, he, I'm not sure when he enters their life, um, but he becomes, um, you know, very important uh, for, for Iris and for John. And, um, and he is a Buddhist. And I mean, I, I have sort of, you know, from a distance assumed that Peter was, uh, played a, a significant role in introducing her to some of these ideas. Um, and, um, uh, and that maybe she got a lot of her interest in Buddhism kind of secondhand from Peter. Is that Peter wrote this book called Going Buddhist about his own experience. And it was rather the other way around, it seems, as if something about Iris Murdoch attracted him to Buddhism. Okay. Curious. I'd have to reread it to get the detail. But he met her, um, he was at the Gifford Lectures when he was a student, PhD student, writing his book, which became the same to the artist, writing his thesis. And he found he was in the room next to her in the guest house where, for the Gifford Lectures where they were put up. And he was so troubled by this and wanted to give her space that he rushed off and stayed in another hotel. He spent a lot of time talking to her and she was quite suspicious actually in some ways of Buddhism in, in, in the little bit that I managed to read today. But he would he would credit her with influencing him towards Buddhism, which is interesting. Yes, I think he, he makes that point a little bit in the biography, but also in his own biography, Family Business, that came out a couple of years ago. And um, yeah, I think he also touched a little bit on that when I did the podcast with him uh, a few months back. So that's, um, no, that, that's absolutely right. Um, I do talk about him uh, briefly uh, in the chapter that I wrote. I mean, he seems to be, uh, at least from my limited knowledge, more than anyone, the person who has suggested that Buddhism was important to Murdoch. Uh, so he talks about it in, in the book, uh, in the Going Buddhist one that you were uh, referring to earlier. Uh, he talks about it in his biography. He talks about it in his, uh, in his uh, The Saint and the Artist uh, study, and also in the preface that he wrote to Existentialists and Mystics. Um, so he, 
So he says um, that she has moved over time to uh, what he calls a religious picture, which shares much with Buddhism. And that she thought that Buddhism got the perennial philosophy she sought. Um, uh, and she thought that, you know, there was something right in that. So he, so he has done a lot to suggest that, uh, that Buddhism was important to her. And, and I, so I guess on my, so I don't know to what extent he influenced her. I have read that book and uh, the other things I mentioned, it's, it's hard for me to tell who's, where the influences are going there. It, her husband said she liked to talk about Buddhism with him. Uh, so I, I take that, that was important, you know, that so there might just be these ongoing intellect, you know, conversations about it. Um, uh, I guess I, the way he puts it probably seems a little strong to me. Um, I think my view is a little bit more qualified as to the way in which uh, Buddhism was important. Though again, that's based on looking at her philosophical works. So there, there could be things she has said elsewhere or parts of her life that I don't know about. Um, I think one of the in interesting explorations of her dealing with Buddhism is um, through the character of James Araby in The Sea, The Sea. Um, Francis, I don't know if you, you're, you're probably the best out of all of us in, in talking a little bit about that. Do you see her trying to explore some of these ideas that uh, Chris and Scott have just been talking about in that novel? Do you think she's trying to work them through? Yes, I think she is to a certain extent, but I'm not qualified in, I'm not qualified at all to talk about Buddhism. Um, I don't know whether the picture that she gives of Buddhism in that novel is an accurate one, and very much the way that Chris has been saying that she's left out a huge amount in the philosophy. I wouldn't really know if it's accurate. It might be a very westernized view of what, sure. a slightly romanticized view as well of what Buddhism is like. Though James is certainly the most unselfed person in that novel, the most, the most virtuous, um, the, the closest towards attention and loving compassion and loss of ego, yes. Yeah, so I have read that. Um... And James is presented as, as some kind of follower of Tibetan Buddhism. Mm. And uh, I, I mean, there's no question that as he's portrayed there, um, uh, especially uh, in contrast to the, uh, the protagonist, his cousin, uh, Charles, mm. um, that he, there, there, he has a kind of selfless, he's not, He's not perfect for sure. There are imperfections, but but he has a kind of selflessness um, that he's portrayed there. And in that respect, um, I mean, I think there, there is a kind of accuracy. I don't think there's much said in that novel very specifically about Tibetan Buddhism and certainly about Tibetan Buddhist philosophy. Um, there, I don't think that's what's really going on there. Um, but insofar as he's, you know, a Buddhist who's presented in this selfless way, there's there's a kind of, I think, accuracy in that respect. Yes, a form of form of truth telling there. Well, as we're moving towards the end of the podcast, I, I think one of the images that stays with me thinking about her religion is this this idea that she um, this idea that she's always trapping with Christ and that she can't escape the figure of Christ, and yet she wants to have a, a demythologized Christianity, um, which brings us back as well. We talked about Plato earlier, um, this idea later in her life when she calls herself a, 
uh, a, a neo-Wittgensteinian Platonist or a, a platonic neo-Wittgensteinian. I mean, there's always some kind of movement to try and join up two kind of, um, in some regards, oppose, opposing ideas. Um, Scott, I wonder if you could talk a, a little bit about um, her trying to get away from um, from the figure of Christ, but not really managing to, or maybe talk getting away from moving towards away from Christianity in the 80s and 90s, but maybe not really. Maybe she just circles back to it. Um, and then we'll um, perhaps think about where we might um, start our, our listeners off if they wanted to read some material in this area. Sure, Miles. Um, you know, there are several interviews uh, that she does, I think, in the uh, probably in the 80s, um, in which certain um, interviewers um, are, are pushing her to to make a more forceful statement about what she rejects, uh, that you know that this the statement the picture stories about Christ and the Gospels are entirely untrue, and she says, "Well, I don't I don't like that language. I I think um uh, I think that that part of it may be untrue, the, but part of it is certainly true." And so she she's quite explicitly uh, distancing herself from a, a certain kind of. Um, uh, presentation here. I'm, I'm not exactly sure where the interviews were. They'd be in Jillian's book. But, um, the, um, but the, the notion here is that Christ is a, a role model for her and, um, and someone that she, um, she turns to. What she's opposed to, it seems to me, are notions of redemptive suffering or any kind of uh, atonement here, a, a, a sort of juridical notion of atonement or something along these lines. That's where she, she pushes hard. And, and for her, um, consolation is this austere business. Uh, it, can't, it can't be a, a, um, an easy consolation, which is one of the things that I, I find to be um, ironic and sad because throughout the entirety of her whole, um, uh, her, her whole work, she has this tension between the the difficult good and the convenient nice, um, and she she is always um, opposed to this cozy, easy, convenient nice. And we see it in in lots of novels. The sort of easy love the problems here. The the good is always difficult. It's always challenging. Um, and yet, when it comes to some of these religious questions, she seems to have given in to. A certain kind of nice. I mean, she 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 wants to uh, embrace those aspects of Buddhism, those aspects of Christianity, which um, which fit with uh, a, a a worldview picture that she's um, she's trying to develop here. Um, and um, and I, I think that's just a, a function of, of sort of where she was in life and how she's trying to put all of these um, these these things together. In some way, um, and um, uh, but I, I think Christ remains a, a central role model and someone that she um, she she looks to with a great deal of reverence, while while not thinking of um, of of Jesus as second person of the Trinity. I think it's a little bit more than that, though, as well. She would call him an icon. She, okay. she would call Christ an icon as well as just a role model. There's, there's something between the two. Yeah, she, she rejects the entire um, Trinitarian setup in metaphysics. Yet Christ glows with light in a way for her. 
okay. and comes into the, we're not going to talk about it today, but he does come into the novels in strange ways. Yeah, I think we could have a whole podcast on the faith yeah. of Jesus in her thought and, and, and fiction, couldn't we? And um, I think we've, um, I think we've done. I think you three have done a really good job in kind of um, laying out the uh, the territory for, uh, for for thinking about Murdoch in this way. Um, could I ask each of you to? Uh, and I put, I'm going to put you on the spot now. Um, could you each recommend an essay or a book or um, an item of um, something something that our, our listeners could go away and read, and and think more deeply about these um, about these issues? Francis, should we start with you? Yeah, I just wanted to say one other little thing was at the beginning of the journey that I was referring to earlier, she writes, women priests, hooray, such a profound change. And a year later, she's in Christchurch Cathedral at the service to celebrate the first year of women priests. And she says, it's very moving, choirs, hymns. I sang very glad. I wish to. I wish I could sing oftener and prayers. And she obviously thoroughly enjoyed that experience. And was and in her last novel, she has a woman who wants to be a priest. So I think that was quite a profound thing for her. What to read? Um, I think I would I would go to the novels and I would probably go to Nuns and Soldiers, I think. Yes. As um, a, a definitive novel. Um, well, many of them deal with these questions, but she does explore mysticism and the religious life in that. Oh, and of course, The Bell. Yeah. as well you know those two novels would would be a very good starting place for thinking about um her thoughts on religion and the way she puts it across yes thank you yeah i would i would agree with being you know writing on the on the uh, on the fiction myself i think i would probably recommend a bit of fiction as well scott how about you well um uh, you know i think that i think uh, Francis is exactly right about nuns and, and soldiers uh, as a place to go. I mean, that's the only place where we actually get a, a picture of Christ. I mean, uh, that that comes and visits uh, Anne Cabbage there. Um, um, uh, Henry and Cato also. Mm -hmm. yes. there's, a, there's a very serious religious engagement there uh, as well in terms of what uh, what's happening. Um, uh, for essays, I mean, I think we... Uh, on God and good, right? I mean, she's right. trying to articulate this this notion of her her Platonic demythologized notion of the of the good that would be um, would be important there. But maybe also the stuff on Simone Weil and the Void. I mean, I think that's also very yes, they're knowing the Void, isn't it? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, that's a, a, another important one. And and again, we haven't, you know, we, we, I'm sure we could have spent a lot of time talking about Simone Weil. So. That's another one on my list. Another podcast about Murdoch's engagement with Faye would be a, a fun one to do. Chris, how about you? Where would you point our listeners? Well, I'm not really a good person to ask in terms of the novels. <laughs> uh, the one that has not been mentioned, which I think is the first that I read by her, is called The Bell. I thought that was uh, a pretty interesting um, uh, story. Oh, it's been some time since I read it, but uh, more... In terms of what we've been talking about, you know, in terms of her, her her view about Christ, you know, in that passage where she says she's a, might be a Buddhist Christian, right before that, so this is in uh, the ontological proof chapter of, of Metaphysics: A Guide to Morals. She talks about the mystical Christ figure of Christ occupying a place analogous to that of the Buddha, right? A Christ who can console and save, but who is uh, uh, to be found as a living force when it, within each human soul and not in some supernatural elsewhere. Uh, 
I thought that was significant, but as far as a recommendation goes, I, what I would say is if, if people are interested in knowing what uh, she thinks about Buddhism, uh, the best place to look in her philosophical works uh, would be that chapter on, it's called Consciousness and Thought, chapter of eight of Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals. Uh, that's actually a somewhat extended discussion of Zen Buddhism in that chapter. And that would probably be the best place to look for what, as a philosopher, sure. she has to say. Well, that's great. Thank you all so much for your, um, your time, your recommendations. It's been a real pleasure and we've covered so much. And I'm sure that um, so many of the areas that we've covered will have individual podcasts on, but I think it's a, a really good introduction to, um, to Murdoch and religion. So my, um, my thanks and gratitude to uh, Christopher Gowns, to Scott Moore and to Francis White. And uh, thanks to you all for listening.